0: Turn with me to the gospel according to Luke. Um, Luke, again, remember, he's a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's a Greek. He's an educated physician. And after speaking to eyewitnesses, wrote an orderly historical account, a narrative, a, a historical narrative of the life, the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to a Roman nobleman named Theophilus. As I said a few weeks ago, that a lot of especially at the beginning of these first few chapters there's a strong thematic st- emphasis on promise and fulfillment we'll see that today. We saw that the narrative opened up with the fulfillment of the promise of the coming of John the Baptist. then the promise uh, and the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah's coming to a virgin girl named Mary who lived in a very obscure village in Galilee called Nazareth. Uh, the same angel Gabriel was sent to uh, to give God's word to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and Mary, uh, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although we said there are some similarities, what's most important are the differences. John will be, uh, um, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John will be, w- w- is called great because of his work and, and what uh, he is doing as God uh, empowers him. Jesus is great because he is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. And Luke's describing more glory to Jesus in every aspect and every respect in infinitely superior. And that's what the story's all about, right? We, we, we see this unfolding of these two boys, but we see the emphasis, excuse me, on Jesus. And even that was true last week when Pastor Chris spoke about the visit between Mary and her relative Elizabeth. It was, it was John the Baptist who leapt in the womb leaped in the womb of his mother Elizabeth and and it was Mary who sang the Magnificat proclaiming uh, all that God was doing in saving his people. And Pastor Chris rightly said, it's all about the triune God blessing his humble servants by graciously including them as participants in his redemptive plan leading to their joy-filled praise and worship. That's what we said last week, and that is true today in our text. It is about God's humble servants that God has raised up and invited in to participate in what he's doing in redemption. And their response is, again, joy-filled praise and worship. God is always the hero. Jesus is always the hero. And as we move from this announcement of these boys now to the actual birth of the boys, we see the same thing. This text this morning that was read earlier is what is known as the Benedictus comes from the Latin word of the first part of the song in verse 68, Um, from the Latin Vulgate, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, same thing with the Magnificat mentioned uh, last week by Pastor Chris, from the Latin Vulgate, meaning to magnify, so both songs, uh, both prophecies come from... That uh, language, if you might have heard that around Christmas time, you'll hear more of that. Uh, The song is that we'll see in verse 68 and following through 80 is a wonderful hymn of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness that God is keeping and fulfilling his covenantal promises to Israel and to the world. That's why we're calling this series Mission to the World. Our reading, or excuse me, our scripture lesson, if you have your Bibles, is in first, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter one, verses fifty-seven through eighty. And what we'll do is we'll move in four movements. I know Chris had two; I, I doubled it. I want to try to double it up to four. Um, the fulfillment of his words, we see this this blessedness uh, being the fulfillment of his word. We'll see that in verses fifty-seven through uh, sixty-seven. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant 68 through 71 the fulfillment of the abrahamic covenant 72 through 75 and then 76 through 80 we'll see the fulfillment of the new covenant as we move into taking of communion the lord's supper so that's where we're going so let's look at the first thing we pick up this narrative um, nine months after Gabriel, the the announcement of Gabriel, the angel, to Zechariah that his elderly barren wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and have a son. If you remember, he was in the temple, um, uh, he was given the, the, the task of burning incense, and an angel shows up and tells him that his wife will bear a son, and Zechariah acted in unbelief, unlike Mary, who acted in faith, and that act of unbelief caused the angel to tell him in verse 20 of chapter 1 that he will be silenced, mark that, silenced, and unable to speak until the day which these things have taken place because you did not believe my word, right? There was disbelief, which will be fulfilled in their time. I think it's fair to say that it was a long nine months, right? right? I mean, you have your elderly wife, 50s, 60s, 70s, who know even her 80s, and she's pregnant. She'd never been pregnant before. Ladies, I don't notice for a fact, but I would imagine the last couple of months might be tough on an elderly woman like that. Uh, at least that's what I'm told. I think we can be assured that during this time of silence, Zechariah and Elizabeth had done some communicating, right? You notice in the text that they, were, they used this writing tablet writing tablets in those days. Verse 63 says they had a writing tablet. It would be a wooden, uh, a wooden tablet covered in wax. And you would use a stylus made of iron or a bone. And you would write on it and be able to smooth it out and continue. So there was some conversation because Elizabeth, as you see in the text, knows what the angel had said to her husband Zechariah and what name he was supposed to name the child. It was John. So Zechariah had many days to consider, nine months long, to think through the process of what took place in that temple nine months earlier as he was in there burning incense. I remember we talked about this. It was a, a time of a lifetime event that a that lot of priests don't even get to do. And the time of silence, I'm sure, gave him many opportunities to reflect And to repent and to really recognize and consider his inability to trust God when God said something was going to happen. He had enough time to talk, I'm sure, not talk, but write down and give his wife that information. He had a a time to consider. Do I believe God's word? Do I believe when God speaks, is that something I can trust? And family, I want that first to be a word of encouragement to you this morning. Even, Even a word of instruction then when crises comes, when, when difficulties come, it, it, it's, it, it's a time to, to reflect. It is a time to acknowledge. it is a time to open God's word, to rest in God's promises. We live busy lives, a lot going on. and sometimes when, when, when difficulties and trials and hardships comes where it seems like everything in our brain at least wants to either run faster or it just shuts down. But Zechariah comes through this adversity. Trusting and believing God. I want to tell you this morning that if you're a a child of the king through the blood of Jesus, God has purposes for your adversity, for his glory, your good, and for your growth, our growth, my growth in grace. Also notice in our text, the whole neighborhood came together and rejoiced with her. You see that? The whole neighborhood uh, rejoice verse 58 with her with this child earlier we saw that elizabeth uh, we read in verse 24 of chapter 1 that elizabeth had kept herself she kept herself hidden when she found out she was pregnant but here's a different story here we see the whole community rejoicing with her just what the angel said back in verse 14 that many will rejoice at her birth It's amazing, right, ladies, how when someone gets pregnant and someone tells someone, it's like everyone knows in like two minutes. But, family, that's what it looks like to live in community, is it not? When people together, gather together, believing and trusting in God, the word of God tells us that we are to what? Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Your joy is my joy, my joy is your joy. Your pain, my pain, your sorrow, my sorrow. It's our joy. It's our sorrow. We're connected to one another through the Spirit. And here at King Chapel, we live that out practically in community groups. We gather together and we share each other's joys and sorrows. And we care for one another. I mean, you could just vision these ladies gathering around this elderly woman... Rejoicing over their baby. Are we living life together that way? Are we experiencing life together where we can say, my joy is your joy, my sorrow is your sorrow? That's what we're called to do. That's what we see here. And notice that they're not just rejoicing because the child was born. Notice what it says, the text. They're rejoicing because of what? God's great mercy. The source of their joy was in the acknowledgement that God had moved, God was in it, God had provided for this family. God did this, God is in the midst of this. Living life together, as we live life together, as they live life together, is a recognition that God's hand is in what is provided for us. Because there has been nothing given to us, to any of us, it does not come from the hand of our Heavenly Father, he's a good provider. He is a good giver. James tells us every good gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shifting shadow. So we see this provision, we see this rejoicing, and verse 59 says uh, that Elizabeth and her husband are going to circumcise John according to the law of Moses. Remember we read in chapter, earlier in chapter 1 that Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous, blameless in the commandments of God. They're following the law. Circumcision, a sign of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. We'll see more about that in a minute. In those days, obviously, you would name a child when a child was born, or you wait for the eighth day during circumcision, and then you would name the child then. And just like today, if you get a room full of people, you want to name your kid, I'm sure there are a lot of opinions. right? Verse 60, Elizabeth says, He shall be called John. And like, John, why John? Right? Some of you ladies experienced that. Like, really? Like, yeah. Like, can you be happy for me? That's the name I chose. Like, what? No one in your family. So after hours of just bickering together, no, it doesn't say that, but it turned to Zechariah, who noticed Catch this family who was not only unable to speak, but apparently unable to hear. Right? He's unable to hear because they have to make signs to him, inquiring what he wanted the boy to be named. Can hear and can't speak. The get out. So being silenced means he's, he's, he can't speak or hear. So he pulls out his Eskocetch or the iPad. That's a sketch. Maybe you don't know what that is. It's this red thing with little, you guys don't remember that. I do. His name is John. Like, we're not talking about this. It's over. Zechariah means God remembers. Elizabeth means God is faithful. John means God is gracious. And the sweetest name of all, Jesus means God saves. Luke is telling the story of salvation. Luke is drawing in these folks, pointing to the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Pointing to the faithfulness of God, the one who who shows mercy and grace to sinners like you and I, remembering the promise he's made. It was R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, says here at this point that sometimes there are things that are customary that must be rejected, that must take a back seat because it doesn't in line with what God has said. I know everybody names them after him. His name is John. It's customary, but they went a different way. Whether it's naming him in circumcision, not the circumcision itself, but naming him on that day, or or naming him, they said, no, no, we're, we're gonna do what God has said. Family, I'm here to tell you this morning, and we've been saying, more and more, the culturally normative things that are going on in our world, which everyone thinks is right and normal and just the way it is, is a blatant disregard and rebellion of God. It's the way it is. Isaiah said in chapter 5, verse 20, we went through that book recently, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. I mean, the horrific murder of unborn children and the acceptance of so much immorality, sexual sin, gender confusion becomes so normalized that we stand upon that which is not regularly accepted in culture. We're viewed as some sort of crazy person. Hateful bigots. I dare to say there are hateful bigots on both sides of the aisle. They really are. But as devoted followers of Christ, we must be firm and faithful to the word of God. At the same time, we ought to be loving and kind to those who oppose us. Always remembering, here's the key. Here's the key. If not for the grace of God, there go I. Standing on the truth of God's word, not accepting cultural norms, Standing on God's word, no matter what, but doing in a way that is gracious and kind. Zachariah was made mute and deaf, and at the moment of his unbelief, he was made mute and deaf at the moment of his unbelief, and now in the moment he obeys, he says, his name is John, judgment ends, his tongue is loose. And notice, God did, God did not loosen his tongue when the baby was born or when she was pregnant. God unloosed his tongue when he stepped out in faith. Zechariah obeying God, trusting God, believing the promise of God, and his tongue was loosened. I, 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 would, I, I look at this text and I think it's safe to say that The merciful discipline of Zechariah with his deafness and his unable to speak brought this elderly man to a place of stronger faith, a stronger trust in God. God God takes our hard experiences, God takes our suffering and uses it to drive us to a deeper relationship, a deeper faith, a deeper trust in him. It was J.C. Ryle said this, let us take heed that afflictions, let us take heed that affliction does us good as it did Zachariah. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. No case is more hopeless than that of a man who, in time of affliction, turns his back on God, end quote. And wow, God God pours out his grace on Zechariah, verse 74, immediately after he begins to bless God. After long nine months not able to speak, not able able to hear his his nagging wife, his loving wife. Belief opens Zechariah's mouth and praise comes out. Genuine faith expressing exuberant praise. And it's contagious. Look at verse 65 and 6. Everyone is in awe. His suffering didn't make him bitter, it made him better. Those who were talked about it everywhere and everyone who heard it, heard the report, uh, knew that something miraculous was, was going on, something supernatural had happened. They had a sense that God was working here. Look what it says, for the hand of the Lord was with them. Meaning God's presence, God's power, God's activity was doing all of this. So John, as he goes into this song of praise, he's, he's, he's he, he. John is born, John is brought to to, to be circumcised, he's given a name, he steps out in faith, and the first thing John does is speak, praises to God. And in verses 68 through 71, we see this promise, fulfillment of David's covenant. So let's put the context here. Zechariah obeys the Lord, steps out and says, name is John, his tongue is loosed, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to praise God. See see the direction there? A place of believing and trusting God caused him to break out in worship. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. When God shows himself, when God shows himself faithful, when God shows himself and reveals himself to us of who he is, all that he's done, all his provision, particularly in redemption, we, him, and all of us are compelled to Praise Him for it. True worship, the essence, the root, the true act of worship is a response listen to the revelation of God, to the unveiling of who God is according to His Word. He's a merciful God. He's great and glorious and holy and majestic and just and righteous and good. And as He, that's why we sing songs you know saturated in the sovereignty of God saturated in the gospel so response is worship and this song like Mary's song is in the prophetic aorist tense which is amazing because what John is what excuse me what Zechariah is saying is it's already done in his mind when God makes a promise it's a done deal it's a done deal and he's praising God because he has visited he has visited his people he has visited people and redeemed his people. Now we're talking about the forerunner. It's as good as done. It is as good as done. And yes, John will be a man who will get into him uh, and his ministry, a very unique individual. As we said, Jesus said, born of a woman, no one's, no one's greater than John the Baptist. Other than Jesus, no one. He, he will call people to repentance. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. Zachariah's son, John the Baptist, will say later on, he, Jesus, must increase; I must decrease. After me comes He who is mightier than I. Straps of sandals, I am unworthy to stoop and untie. The first thing Zechariah wants us to see is that John is just part of something God is doing, and that's he's the, story. He's the hero of all these narratives. Something he's doing, he's great. It's unprecedented because he's visiting his people in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's going to accomplish his promises. He's going to accomplish salvation. He is going to accomplish the promise he made of redemption. Now notice in our text the word redemption or redeemed in verse 68. We love that word here at King's Chapel. part of our core values. EIC, Eternity, Identity, Community. Eternity is the gospel of redemption. There are other words we could have used. But it's a beautiful word found in Scripture, and it means that a price has been paid. Like a kinsman redeemer, a family member has a right to buy back land or even buy back a relative from slavery. A redemption price was required for every firstborn child. Uh, every firstborn belonged to God and therefore it required that a family member would bring a sacrifice to redeem their firstborn it was a, it is a call to recognize that sin is real in the family that's why Abraham when he was called to sacrifice his son knew what time it was sin judgment and 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 it was called upon Abraham the time has come up you need to pay bring your son the other word uh, the other Reference of redemption and redeemed. Not only slavery, buying back slavery, but it points to God's deliverance of Israel. You see it all over scripture. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, there's songs and there's been lots of, uh, of scripture speaking of the deliverance being redemption. A price has been paid. And we see how that happened in verse 69. He, because He's the redeemer because he has raised up a horn of salvation Notice what it says, in the house of his servant David, spoken long ago from the prophets, that we would be saved, verse 21, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Uh, if you're not familiar, the word horn uh, is derived from an animal's horn. And it symbolizes strength, power, authority, business. It's the business end of, 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 of an ox, And here we see Davidic horn being raised up in a mighty display of power with the coming of the Redeemer. We know his name is Jesus Christ. He's the horn of salvation. He comes from the house of David. We saw that already. We said earlier in verse 24 and 27, um, uh, excuse me, 27 and 32, how Luke is showing us that Jesus comes from the line of David, the promise of the line of David. And last week, Pastor Chris mentioned in the Magnificat that the song that Mary sang, uh, the first part of that, that, that psalm, that song, comes from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, if you remember. well, If you go to that prayer, you'll see she actually ends here where Zechariah has begun. She says this, after talking about this, this the thing that God is doing, she says in verse 10 of her prayer, the, advers- the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces, Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, Messiah. All this promised to David, King David, that someone will come from his lineage, from his seed, from his house, with all authority to reign and to rule over an eternal kingdom. David's son Solomon will build him a kingdom excuse me, will build him a temple, but the ultimate and greater successor will establish a throne forever. That's what the prophet Nathan said to David in Second Samuel chapter seven. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house, a dynasty for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before uh, forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Israel knows 2nd Samuel 7th, all of Israel waited with great anticipation, waiting for the promise of the Davidic line, the Messiah to come, and they waited. Something the people waited with great anticipation. And it wasn't just Nathan in Second Samuel. His prophets of old, it says. First Chronicles 17, Psalm 89. I read this week, uh, again, that, that there's something like 40 references in the Old Testament about the Davidic covenant. And now Zechariah is saying, folks, the, the king has come. God said it, it is good as done. Now... There's someone look at this and it speaks about, um, you can see verse 71, save from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, that Zechariah, Zechariah is really speaking about the Roman government in that day that the Israelites were looking to overcome the governmental authority over them. Um, and you read the New Testament, there are many people that were hoping that would take place. And there, there may be some of that flavor in Zechariah's prophecy, but I don't think so. I don't think, I think in a very real sense, when the Messiah comes, again, all the enemies of God will be destroyed. All those who hate God's people will be destroyed. All, listen, governmental systems and political parties will be null and void. No Democrat, no Republican party, when King Jesus takes his rightful place on his throne. Two party system over when Jesus comes back. Yeah, you could be a Democrat and a Republican or a Republican I should say and be joyful over that. Um, there's a, there's a uh, um, in the early 20th century, uh, there's a guy by the name of a theologian, Narvel uh, Geldenhuns, he's a well known commentator to the book of Luke. He says this, there may be a reference here to a political liberation as well but something far more glorious is meant. The wholehearted service of the Lord and complete freedom from all bonds of sin, guilt, punishment, curse, Satan, and destruction, end quote. That's true. Because the promise of the Messiah who comes, he'll establish a a kingdom, and the all-powerful king will come and defeat all of God's enemies. All of God's people's enemies will be delivered in the end. Revelation 21 speaks of the new heavens and new earth. Revelation speaks about tears being wiped away. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more injustice, no more hatred. Righteousness will be seen like never before. It's not a question, is this going to happen? It is going to happen. It's not about, listen, we need to go out and vote, although you do. There'll be no voting. The Lord promised he will fulfill this. And the great promise of an, eternal, you know, an enduring and eternal kingdom is when the king of king comes and fills the land with his righteousness. And that's not just a hope for Israel. Family, we have been grafted in. That's our hope. Maybe some of you stressed out because what Tuesday's gonna bring. God's in charge. God knows. Our hope is not in the party Our hope is in God. We should look with just as much anticipation, if not more, of the coming reigning ruler of the house of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Sit on an eternal throne, reigning over all creation. The fulfillment of David. The fulfillment now of Abraham. Look at verse 72. We see that very clearly as well. So let's just digress for a second. Just talk about covenant for a moment. A covenant is a promise, a a binding set of agreement that that has specific conditions. It's relational, right? So covenants are about relationships. Our God is a covenant-making God, and God deals with us in relationship through covenant. We see the first one in Genesis 2 with Adam. It was a covenant of works of which Adam was told, do this, get blessing, don't do that, uh, do that, and get cursed. And we know what happened. God had provided everything possible that he could possibly want and need. Including his new naked wife. That's not good enough. Don't eat from that tree. And we know what happened. He ate from that tree. And Sin enters the world. And and then in Genesis 6, Genesis 9, we see this massive amount of sin in the world. And God says, I'm going to destroy the earth by water. And but he saves Noah. And when he saves Noah, he says, I'm going to never do that again. And he makes a covenant with Noah. And he puts a rainbow in the sky and says, That's my promise. So what we see even in the beginning of Scripture, some covenants like the Noah, the Noah covenant are universal and unilateral. It's for all mankind. It pertains to everyone. But some covenants are limited and only apply to a certain number of people like marriage covenants, just two people before the Lord. Covenants are universal, limited, conditional, unconditional. Adam's covenant was conditional. Obey me and get blessed. Disobey me and you'll die. But yet God, yet God in his mercy, God in his grace, when Adam failed the the covenant promise God made, God stepped in with an unconditional promise. Genesis 3.15 is where it all began. The promise that someday, someday, someone will be raised up. He says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is all of grace. Someone will come, an offspring will come, and he will bruise the eternal son. But Jesus will crush with a fatal blow to defeat sin, Satan, and death. And this covenant promise, praise God, is not based on anyone's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Unconditional promises emerge from that promise, and then we see it again in the covenant that God made with Abraham, and that's where we're at now. The oath was a significant part of, Uh, of any covenant there's an oath that is being made in fact we read that in in excuse me let me let me just read that really quickly to you the oath that is part of the promised covenant that god made to abraham chapter 6 of hebrews For when god made a promise to abraham that's the covenant promise he made since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely i will bless you and multiply you we'll see that in a minute And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in their disputes an oath is final uh, for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God had come to, to Abraham, chapter 12, and promised him that he would bless him he would bless those who bless him, curse him, those who curse him. He will make his family a blessing to the whole world. In chapter 15, he reiterates, reiterates that promise. Chapter 17, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings will come from you. I'll, I'll establish my covenant between you and your offspring for an everlasting covenant between your God and you. I will give to your offspring, to you and your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession, I will be their God. And what you find in this covenant promise is a lineage. There there will be many that will come from you. There's a land, piece of property that I will give you. And then the Lord himself will come from you, Abraham. And that covenantal that uh, covenantal promise that God made to Abraham, we see also reaching out to the covenant that God made to David, a seed. Starting from Genesis 3.15 to Abraham and to David. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one who is Christ. The seed, the promise that God and the drumbeat throughout all of history of the Old Testament pointing to from Genesis to Abraham to David is Christ. Christ. Family, that should encourage you today. That should strengthen your faith today. That God for thousands of years has made a promise and we can witness that string to to where it says Christ has come. He is, according to Matthew, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Let that sink deep into your soul this morning that you can trust God in all things. And notice it's not because God was reluctant. Look what it says. Because of the mercy promised to our fathers in verse 72. His has said, his mercy, his, his covenantal loyal love to Abraham. It's not because of works, it's not because of your faithfulness, it's because of his faithfulness. If you go back in chapter 15 of Genesis, we see this, this covenant being cut. If you read the story, I'll get into it in a little bit. You don't need to go there, you go there later on today. Abraham is told about this covenant, this promise, and then Abraham in chapter 15 is told to go out and get a three-year-old heifer, a, a female goat, and a ram, and turtle doves, and pigeons. And he wants to take the animals, not the, not the pigeon and the turtle dove, but he wants to take the animals, God tells him, and, and, and cut them in half, and lay them side by side in a row, parallel to one another, in piece, two pieces. Abraham does what God commands because Abraham knows what time it is. In that particular t- culture you would you would ratify, you would cut a covenant this way. You would you would slaughter the animals, separate them and you would walk through the through the animals symbolizing that if I that, 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 that this is what would happen to me if if or happen to you if you fail to keep your end of the bargain. If you fail to keep your part of the covenant, As you're walking through these animals that have been cut in two, saying, let the curse be upon me. I'm going to walk through, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I don't keep my covenant promise, let this happen to me. And in Genesis 15, what's so cool and so amazing, it says this, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold... Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, and after nightfall, a smoking fiery pot and a blazing torch passed between the pieces of the sacrifice. Family is the awesome presence of God. A theophany, a tangible manifestation of God, comes down and ratifies that covenant. Not Abraham. And what's so incredible is that God doesn't ask Abraham, but he is seen going through the pieces of The animals, God alone passed through these pieces because it was an unconditional, unilateral, one-sided covenant symbolizing God saying, let that happen to me if I don't keep what I promised you. A divine denunciation guaranteeing Abraham that Abraham would be the descendant, that the Lord will come from him. Well, cursed would be upon God. That cannot happen. And the covenant made with Abraham is not only unconditional unilateral, it is eternal. It is irrevocable covenant of grace, undeserved, unearned. And Zechariah is probably holding John in his hands by now, realizing that God keeps his promise. He made it to David. He made it to Abraham. And he's keeping it now. Jesus, the forerunner of my son, the promised one who will come and crush Sin and Satan and death, who rise from the dead, will deliver us from the hands of our enemies. Verse 74 B, so that we might serve him without fear, so that we may serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all the of our days. Which brings us to our last point. John's in his arms. And you child, verse 76. You child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. The promise is coming. Remember, Gabriel said to John, excuse me, to Zechariah back at the temple in chapter 1, verse 16, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, to the Lord their God. And, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He, he has been raised up to prepare God's people, realizing their guilt, realizing their, their, their sin, confessing and calling people to what? Repentance. Malachi 4 closed in the Old Testament. We talked about this with the coming of this prophet. 400 years of silence, no word from heaven. And then all of a sudden an angel shows up. And after 400 years of silence, says, Hey, Zach, you and your wife having a baby. The promise of Malachi 4 has come and now is the day. He will prepare the way for the Lord. And when we read in verse 76 through 79, we see there is some real indication of the the accuracy of the ministry of John. We'll talk about that another day. Uh, Of John's life, John's ministry, John's preaching ministry. But let me tell you what Zechariah is truly pointing to in these verses. He understands that when the Messiah comes, the salvation, the fulfillment of all the promises to David, all the promises to Abraham, including the personal promise of salvation, will come because it it is ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah in the new covenant. Notice what he says back in verse 74. Delivered from the hands of our enemies. Why? So that we might serve God without fear. Delivered to serve, to worship. We saw that where in the Exodus, right? Right? Moses did not go to Pharaoh and say, God said, let my people go. That's not what he said. Well, he didn't stop there. Go back and read Exodus. He said, let my people go so that they may worship me. Being delivered from sin, death, and hell, self-centeredness, and brokenness is for the purpose of worship. That they would serve and worship me. He says, in holiness, verse 75, and righteousness for all of our days. And then notice in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Those verses go together. Deliverance, an opportunity to serve God without fear, walking in holiness and righteousness all go together, and family can only happen, mark it in your Bibles, through the forgiveness of sins, through the new covenant promise. Because it's in the new covenant promise of forgiveness of sins that we get a new heart. We have new desires. We've been born anew, born again. Our old heart has been changed. Our broken heart has been healed. Our cold heart has been given warmth. It's a heart now that could serve God without fear. Why would I fear serving God? My sins have been forgiven. A heart that can serve God in holiness because the Holy Spirit has separated us from sin and, and caused us to be devoted to God. A heart that is righteous and bent toward doing right. Because the problem is just what Jeremiah said in chapter 17. Our heart, without this, without forgiveness, without regeneration, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You, me, and everyone. Romans 3, no one is righteous, not one. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. By nature, children of wrath, we need a new heart. Israel needs a new heart. You need a new heart. I need a new heart. And we need forgiveness of sins in order to receive the new covenant promise of a new heart. Because we're all slaves to sin. And you may be here thinking, you know what? I don't, I don't know. Do I really need a new heart? Can, can I just work harder? Or maybe I'm not that bad. If you're here and you think that, listen to this. D.L. Moody. Dio Modi illustrated the need of a new heart this way. This is what he said. Now listen. He says, Suppose we could take your heart, my heart, suppose we could take your heart, place it in a glass cage, and then suppose that everyone could walk by, look in that cage, and see just what you are. Suppose everyone could see what you think what you desire, what your motives are, all the secret thoughts, what would you do? Would you want to put drapes over the cage or would you you be willing to have any and all of your heart or would you admit your heart's seen or would you admit you need a new heart, end quote. Don't raise your hands. Like, I don't want you to see some of the things that go through me. And thinking, where wicked how wicked and where did that come from this song is about the fulfillment of God's promises fulfillment of God's promises all about what Jesus came to do not just to forgive us we need that but also to transform us that's the new covenant Zechariah didn't have a new testament with him but he knew the old testament that's all he needed And the language he used here is very important because it not only speaks about forgiveness, but the ability to walk with God, to live righteously, to do what's right, to to not be afraid, to serve God in holiness and righteousness. Jeremiah 31, God promises, I'll make you a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the one I made to their fathers. This time I'll put my law not on a tablet, but within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I shall be their God. They shall be my people. They shall know me and I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's their promise. That's the fulfillment today in Jesus Christ. A forgiving of our sins, a new heart, that the law of God and the moral standard of God is not just given to us on a page, but written to us in our hearts. And not just law on a page, but the, the, the internal power, transformation, Powerful transformation of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel said the same thing. I'll put a new heart, a new spirit within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will soften that. I will, I will renew it. I'll put my spirit within you, Ezekiel says, and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey all my rules. Family, you can't do it. Your new life, your new heart, Your new desires cannot be done by your actions, no matter how hard you and I try. All over Scripture, I will do this, I will put, I will write. Everything is about what God will do. Salvation is not a human invention, but a divine invitation. It is not something we achieve by going to God, but something God has done by coming to us in Christ. You'll never receive salvation, forgiveness, transformation by earning it. Or by any merit, only when sinners repent, turn, acknowledge their sin, cry out to God for mercy, trust in the finished work of Christ, who died as a wrath absorbing sacrifice in our place, rose from the dead, and called out for salvation, that God will respond. Because of his tender, verse 78, tender mercy, again, who lived light, who, who gave light. He, he has tender mercy. Tender mercy, uh, that word tender. As, as, as talks about the depth and the deep of the internal bowels of someone. God's not saying, oh, well, I guess I, man, I don't want to forgive you. All right, I'll do it. Tender mercy. Tender mercy it goes down deep. The very nature of God, His mercy, is deep rooted. A desire for doing good, showing favor, showing kindness, showing mercy to undeserved sinners like you and me. Mercy's loyal covenantal language again, attribute of God. Because look at verse seventy-nine. All of us, Israel included, you and I in this room, at one point in our lives, we lost our way, overtaken by night. We were shipwrecked into total darkness. Look what it says: sitting in darkness. Isaiah said that people walking in darkness, light living in the land of the shadow of death. We see that in the New Testament. Sin is betrayed as darkness, as brokenness. But then, look what it says. The sunrise has visited us. The light has come. And the light of the world, Jesus said. Light has been given to those in darkness. Family, listen. We're going to wrap it up in a minute. Catch this. Light has been given to those who are in darkness because the new covenant. The new covenant is that he who is the light of the world bore our darkness in our place. He got what we deserve promise to david the promise abraham the promise of the forgiveness all took place all was fulfilled the light has come because the light of the world was cast into outer darkness as the band comes up let me remind you the day of the exodus god sent plagues upon egypt and on that ninth plague if you remember there was darkness over the land in other words god was saying get ready then the tenth plague came at midnight in the dark. God broke into history and broke, uh, brought down divine justice on evil. In the home of everyone, you know the story, in the home of every single family. In Egypt, when darkness came down, the sign of evil, the, 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 the picture of evil, when justice came down on Egypt, every single home had a dead son or a dead lamb. Period. Period. The only shelter from God's darkness, from judgment, was under the blood of the lamb that covered that door frame. In Mark chapter 15, as Jesus hung on the cross, it says the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Judgment came down on our Savior. Judgment came down on our substitute. Judgment for sin, as the Son of God became our substitute, died in our place to save us from our sins, and it was then when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, forsaken from the Father, cast into outer darkness. He never ceased to be God, but that fellowship was God was broken. As sin was poured out on him, as judgment came down on him, just like in Egypt, the only way to escape, is is under shelter and under the blood of Jesus. He took the cup, he drank the cup of wrath so that we might be forgiven through his suffering. Remember how God walked through the pieces of, of, of the torn flesh to ratify the covenant with Abraham? As if to say, if I don't keep my covenant, let this death, this curse be upon me. Well, on the cross, we see Jesus being cursed, dying, not because he broke the covenant, but in order to keep it. He became a curse for us, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the, from, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. On the night Jesus was betrayed, on the night he gathered his disciples, his apostles in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. This is my body broken for you. He took the cup. And he said, what? This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Receive forgiveness, receive new life, receive a new heart. Pointing to the unilateral, irrevocable, unchangeable, eternal promise of God. In Christ we are forgiven. In Christ the offspring has come who crushed Satan, who defeated sin, destroyed our enemies, vanquished death. He will save sinners by forgiving them of their sins, regenerating us from the inside And giving us new hearts to serve love, worship Him, walk in holiness without fear. That's what this table is all about the new covenant. The bread on the table represents the body that was broken, the cup represents the blood that was shed. If you're a believer, we invite you to come in a few moments as the band is going to play to take up the bread and take up the cup. If you have never made a commitment to Christ, you have never said, yes, Jesus is Lord, he died for me, rose for me, then we're glad you're here, but the table is for those who've already made a profession of faith and have been born again and born anew of the Spirit of God. We're gonna spend time, the band's gonna play, you're gonna grab the, the, the bread, come down these aisles, take the cup, sit back, spend time praying, spend time confessing, your sins, spend time repenting of your sins, and then in time, after the song, I'll get up and I'll lead us through taking of the elements together. Maybe you need to trust God, something going on. Maybe you need to stand on God's promises. Maybe it's a time for you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a time to recognize that you can't do it. God, can't, God, God is the only one that could change your heart, your desires, and you could serve him and worship him Without fear, Christ died. Christ rose. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that you have made promises for centuries. You kept them all. You kept them all. Help us, Lord, to see that and to to trust you, to, to, to lean on you, to rely upon you. Help us to see the promises that have been made and the promises that have been fulfilled. And most importantly, Lord, let us see today how the new covenant is the only way our sins can be forgiven. His name is Jesus. So God, as we sing, as we celebrate the Lord's, uh, the, the, the bread and the cup today, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our faith. You would give new life to those who don't know you. And that, Father, we can celebrate together the work of Jesus in the new covenant. And we thank you for our time, and we look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.